the Zell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 645 for October 21st, 2018. Communications in the aftermath of a natural disaster, T-Mobile introduces ultra-cheap three-year installment plans, and there's a new palm in town. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Kappas. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application, available now for Android and iOS for $1.99. Well, first in the news, over a quarter million households are still without home internet, phone, or TV service in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Telcos continue to scramble to repair networks damaged by Hurricane Michael, and mobile service has taken a big hit. Outages are affecting approximately 15% of cell sites in the 21 Florida counties where the FCC is tracking hurricane-related outages. Carriers have made progress in reducing those outages over the past few days, and nearly 29% of tracked cell sites in Florida were out as of October 11th. But the outage rate has been nearly cut in half since the storm. The storm, they say, caused unprecedented damage to fiber, according to Verizon, including many of their temporary portable assets. AT&T said that its network is performing well and nearly fully restored in many affected areas. AT&T is using portable cell sites in numerous locations throughout Florida and Georgia while the carrier is repairing the permanent network. But more than 66% of cell sites, that's 216 out of 327 in Florida's Bay County were out and more than 69% of cell sites in Florida's Gulf County were out. Across the 21 Florida counties that were part of the disaster reporting, 15% of cell sites were out of service. So while the number of cell site outages provides a rough approximation of the storm's impact. The FCC says the statistic does not necessarily correspond with the availability of wireless service to consumers in that area. They said wireless networks are often designed with numerous overlapping cell sites that provide maximum capacity and continuity of service when an individual site is inoperable. Carriers also frequently use temporary facilities such as cells on wheels to keep the service up in disaster areas. So while crews worked around the clock to make these repairs, this disaster certainly accentuates the point that legacy communications like TV or FM radio with just one antenna to repair are much easier to deal with where you have a fiber infrastructure for cell sites and home internet with hundreds of thousands of pieces of equipment. Right. So even TV and FM radio a lot of times had backup transmitters as well in a different site. So if something did happen to their main um, uh, transmitting facility, they could switch their backup, and they also did for their actual studios and broadcasting facilities as well. There's backups for it. Um, with cellular service, there is not really that sort of infrastructure available because basically they're using the whole infrastructure as backup and redundancy, but if it gets damaged, like if the fiber backhauls get damaged, you can have an antenna operating, if you're lucky, uh, but there's no data that's going to move on it because the rest of the infrastructure is not working. It's a much more complicated network and much more difficult to keep running during a disaster. And of course, there's not real strong regulation to, to do that. If we uh, take a look back at our old uh, POTS lines that we used to have for telephone service, that was a highly regulated industry requiring rural broad or uh, not broadband, but rural service to be provided. And they also required uh, a lot of um durability during disasters. There was a central office, you know, in like a major metropolitan area. There's, you know, 15, 20 of these, uh, but not that many of them. And they were very hardened facilities with gener huge generators, huge fuel tanks, big, huge batteries that went on and on and on to allow for the generator to get started. They had requirements to maintain service for something like a week uh, without, without power. And all these um, 
and all the lines that were going to the houses were dedicated copper lines that went right to the house. So maybe a house or few would have not have service, but that central office would be operating, providing communication. Whereas now a cell phone service, that's not really the case. We don't have that stringent requirements. So, uh, cell towers may have battery backups. They may not. They may have a generator. They may not. And as you mentioned in the story, they have portable assets they bring in to keep cell sites running. But that doesn't really work if you have a major, major natural disaster because they've overwhelmed all of their backups and there's just nothing left. So there's basically no infrastructure. And you mentioned POTS as the, you know, one of the examples for, you know, comparison, which um, also low voltage. Uh, so you didn't have to power them as long as the the line was, uh, you know, not you don't have to power it in your home. So as long as the line wasn't damaged going back to the, the central switching station, then you were really, unless the, the, the number of circuits going out uh, was being overwhelmed, you would still be able to make calls. Or at the very least, you would get a, you know, all circuits are busy uh, type of notification when you're trying to do it. But at least you knew whether or not you have service. And the case of today's, uh, you know, communications that people are relying on where it's mostly mobile related, um, you know, you, you might look at your phone and it'll show bars on the phone. But if, again, that cell site is operating, but there's nothing behind it to provide that backhaul, whether it's for data or phone calling, uh, that doesn't mean anything. And so you might be left kind of in, in limbo and not being able to figure out whether or not you can actually use your device. Right. And if we had regulations that were different for cell phone service that kind of matched the, uh, you know, the POTS line service to be highly um, available during disasters, boy, would the, the cell networks would be exceptionally different. We'd have probably a whole separate overlay network of a low frequency with big cell sites that where they could have a few of them up and running to cover large areas uh, with, the, of course, you know, power generation and uh, other things like that. Um, even your cell phone would probably be designed differently because uh, of battery requirements as well. Do you, I mean, but do you think as, um, you know, as a concept, certainly I, I can wrap my head around that, but do you think it, it, re reality will actually allow that to happen? Is that is that ever going to be, uh, you know, something that becomes a priority? Is there a scenario out there that says we need to have, um, you know, whatever it is, these these massive, uh, you know, high powered sites um, in every major market that are going to allow for at least minimal communications. And maybe it's just related to stuff like text messaging or something like that, where it's only small amounts of data and it's only, you know, uh, whatever, however it's being designed. Are we going to ever be at a point where uh, we need to have that? Or are we just going to say it's it's all about, you know, kind of the the more noted aspect to it where you've got, you know, sites are now becoming even, you know, closer together, smaller, lower powered, et cetera. Uh, and, and so, you know, the number is only going up versus, you know, creating something that's going to cover a wide area uh, with uh, with relatively uh, low amounts of data being pushed through it. Right. It's getting worse and it will get worse. And I don't think we have a chance of going back due to the current, um, you know, ever since the 90s with the, the major deregulation of uh, of course, I'm not a huge fan of regulation either, but companies will not pay all kinds of extra money to provide backup services in case of emergency because it's exceptionally expensive. And that's not what they're there to do to provide backup data service because that's not regulated for them to say you've got to have really hardened communication equipment. And it, it, it just wouldn't really work. And of course, with the lobbying and the 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 real strength that companies have now to keep things like regulation happening, it's just not going to happen. 
So um, a, a great segue into uh, some more related news this week, which was um, the FCC's chairman, Ajit Pai, slamming the carriers for their failure to respo- restore service quickly uh, in these areas um, you know, that were in the wake of, of Hurricane Michael. He called the delay completely unacceptable. But here's the thing. It was his statement is ignoring the fact that his agency uh, over the last couple of years are the ones that have deregulated the industry to the point that has left consumers without these protections that were designed to ensure restoration of service after disasters. So going back, of course, the Obama era FCC wrote in those regulations to protect customers after Verizon tried to avoid rebuilding wireline phone infrastructure in New York after Hurricane Sandy hit the area back in 2012. Uh, Pi had repealed those rules, claiming that they prevented carriers from upgrading old copper networks. And the repeal order also made no mention uh, of the fact that Verizon's response in Hurricane Sandy only once. Um, And and so among the things with this, the FCC has eliminated, of course, the requirements that telcos turn off copper networks. uh, And um, they also uh, lets the carriers replace wireline service with mobile service only um, should it pass a functional test. So additionally, Pi has further deregulated the providers to make it easier for them to discontinue service after a natural disaster. So um, the situation here is uh, shows what happens when regulations um, are taken away. The responsibility uh, of these, um, you know, public infrastructure providers um, are now um, basically the, the requirements are unenforceable because you've got no more regulations that are saying this is what needs to happen. Um, and so as a company, um, they're, you know, getting ready to, you know, move forward uh, with different advancements in technology and that maintenance of legacy systems for emergency services is not something that, uh, you know, they, they're really incentivized to do at this point. Uh, definitely uh, is is something that we need to we need to keep watching uh, because Verizon has said that it will automatically credit customers in areas that were impacted with the service. But that's no uh, you know solace for somebody who's trying to you know get some communication you know today. Uh, and while the company continues to make repairs, uh, you know those temporary cell sites are up and everything. Verizon has said that there's been massive damage to parts of its fiber network, and it's going to uh, take some time for this all to get up updated and uh, repaired. So um, you, the, the the kind of the irony in the whole thing is, is Verizon says you can check their website to check the progress of repairs, which is, you know, real easy to do when you've got no way to get on the internet. So um, it, it's a it's a very sticky situation. And, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the, the you know, what happens with net neutrality uh, and, uh, you know, with the changes that are happening. This is a perfect example of, of things that have happened as a result of the changes that have been made. Right. And, you know, deregulating these things, especially things that require uh, a lot of extra money and a lot of things that really um, are a burden to the companies. They're not going to be doing these things. And we just can't rely on them just being good, good uh, corporate citizens to provide uh, excellent service in case of emergencies. I mean, they do what they can. And and obviously they do because they do want to maintain customers because they will piss off customers. But if every network is down, you know, they don't really have anything to go on. And of course, they don't really have the equipment to get it back up and running as fast as uh, as we'd like. And they don't have the uh, the real need to. And it's just not part of the, the situation now because of the... Um, because of that, and and of course the FCC, you know, calling them out for not getting it built up, just is it, it's just laughable because of uh, the rules that they've they've just dropped. So the the classic case of 
you know, business, uh, you know, needs and or requirements versus uh, what regulation is is requiring. And um, it, it kind of the in the front line of a here's where the rubber is going to meet the road with the things that are changing. So, um, you know, don't don't think of this as a, uh, you know, a conversation that is uh, fully supporting, um, you know, an Obama era FCC and the regulations that they put in. But think of it more as a here's what happens uh, when things are changed in a way that might be more focused o- on a political agenda uh, than uh, on the kind of the, you know, the needs and the expectations of the public in what they're going to be getting out of these services. Right. And this has nothing to do with, you know, political agendas, it, just with the exception that it's uh, it seems to be one party or another that makes these kind of decisions either for regulation or, or not. But it's one of these things that really go go back to, you know, what is serving the need for a, an American or for, for a consumer in general? Like, what's the best course of action? What's the, the best thing for anybody and everybody? And that seems to really be lost. Uh, you know, the, the, the telephone regulations that go back to the POTS lines, that's from like the 1930s where when they were developing kind of the system and, and putting the, the plans in place to make a nice, reliable, uh, you know, communication network. Um, but that's just obviously not as much of the case now. Right. And, uh, you know, it's again, the, these are all, you know, businesses that are running these services. This is not government uh, infrastructure. This is not government uh, run services. And so, you know, it's a again, it's a it's a classic business versus what the regulation says has to happen scenario. And, um, you know, again, it's a hurricane uh, is a is a terrible uh, natural disaster that causes horrific damage and um, can can leave um, you know even a very well funded and very capable organization scrambling to try and figure this this stuff out and it's just exacerbated by the fact that you've got a a, a now a, a laxed requirement to, for this and how fast things are repaired and if if those things are repaired even at all Right. And, uh, you know, uh, GPI says that, uh, you know, companies should be able to self-regulate and the, the competition should work out these issues. This is obviously not going to be the case. And, and, and of course, that was more, more so speaking to net neutrality. But using that argument, especially in this case, can show how, how bad that is. Right. And it just it doesn't it doesn't sit well, especially if you happen to be one of those people that's impacted or are involved or, or know people that are impacted. Let's move on. Uh, next up, Apple has updated its privacy website and given customers new tools to manage their personal info. Specifically, Apple has made it possible for owners of Apple devices to download and view all the data Apple has collected on them. The change is specific <clears throat> to Apple's U.S. customers. European customers have been able to access their data since May when the GDPR privacy regulations went into effect. The latest versions of iOS and macOS include more privacy protections and provide people with more control over their information. Apple has updated its website also to explain how user data is stored and transported and what encryption and security protocols are employed in the process. Well, Verizon has moved the removed the SIM lock from its Pixel 3 and Pixel 3 XL devices this week. Users had noticed that the phone was locked before being activated on the network. This is a policy of Verizon been, began doing earlier this year to deter theft. Uh, and at launch, there was an update related to an automatic overnight unlock on the Pixel 3S, which also showed up on phones sold at Best Buy stores. Uh, Verizon says they've temporarily removed this from the Pixel 3 and are assessing where it will be implemented in the future. 
So this means all Pixel phones will be sold SIM unlocked and can be used on any network, not just Verizon's. Verizon, of course, the only official carrier selling the devices, but you can still get it uh, and put it on other networks, including Google's Project Fi MVNO. As we talked about a couple of months ago, yeah, Verizon started to say they're going to lock their phones, which is, of course, against the policy of the, the frequency they have, the 700 megahertz LTE band. All of the devices are required to be unlocked. Uh, to be used on that network for them to even have that license, so they're they're definitely in a gray area here with these uh, lo- with the locking that they did. It's good they unlocked these because a lot of people were buying them and having trouble activating them. I can see the uh, uh, you know the the policy to try and deter theft that uh, certainly does make sense, but there's got to be a a process in place in order to, if, if you're going to do that, to unlock them uh, in an easy way that doesn't require uh, a, an activation on Verizon's network in order to do so. So uh, again, we'll follow this one as well, uh, because obviously it's very important from uh, the, uh, the, you know, the regulations that are in place for that, that band on the network. Uh, T-Mobile Wednesday announcing new handset and service promotions that offer new phones, lower monthly payments on equipment installment plans, lasting now three years. So beginning October 19th, customers can trade in an eligible phone for a new Samsung Galaxy S8, S9, Note 9, LG G7, or LG V40 Thin Q for payments as low as $10 per month. T-Mobile hopes customers taking advantage of the promo will jump on the T-Mobile Essentials plan, which provides a family of four with unlimited service for $40 per month or $160 total. This breaks down to $30 per month per line for service and $10 per month for device payments. Customers who want the T-Mobile One plan will need to pay another $10 a month per line or $50 a month. Uh, Eligible phone trade-ins will be credited to customer accounts uh, over a period of 36 months. The maximum trade-in value is $360 per device, and that will depend on the trade-in condition of the device. T-Mobile didn't immediately list a set of devices eligible for trade-in, but it also applies uh, the purchase price of most phones LG sells and the upcoming now iPhone 10R that was just uh, went uh, up on pre-order this week. In device news, uh, Android's uh, latest uh, new device is a Palm. Yes, a Palm phone. Though it's not quite what you're thinking. A California company has purchased the rights to the Palm brand from TCL, who has owned the brand for a while. Uh, They launched the device that they're calling an ultra mobile product that syncs with your smartphone to keep it connected, uh, keep you connected, but not consumed. So think of the device as half the size of your smartphone, but 80% of the power, not quite Uh, a smartphone, but certainly more capable than a wearable. The idea here is to allow people to access their vital apps when needed, but keep them from staring at their screen all day long, particularly when they're out and about. The device is tiny and features an aluminum chassis with Gorilla Glass panels on the front and the back. It's a rated IP68 for protection against dust and water, and Palm says the device is designed to be worn, not carried. Rather than serve as the primary phone, it is a companion device. Uh, You will need to have a, a regular Android or iOS smartphone on a Verizon service plan to activate it. The Palm, they're calling it, is billed like a smartwatch. It's $10 per month and relies on the same number as the main device. It is able to keep your messages, calls, and other data in sync between itself and the primary phone. It's only got a 3.3-inch HD screen and an underpowered Snapdragon 435 processor, though it does have 3 gigs of RAM and 32 gigs of storage. There's still a camera, 12-megapixel rear camera with a flash and a selfie camera at 8 megapixels. It has LTE, Wi-Fi, GPS, and Bluetooth with an embedded SIM card. It's got an 800 milliamp hour battery and relies on face security to unlock. It runs Android 8.1 Oreo and is compatible with millions of Android apps. 
The user interface skips the idea of a home screen and instead shows all the onboard applications. A small gesture pad is available at the bottom of the screen, accessed by swiping up, and can be used to search for apps based on scrolling scrolling the first letter of the application. The gesture pad also contains shortcuts to the phone, messages, camera, and music applications. And the crux of the palm is something called life mode. And so when this mode is uh, activated, the palm essentially goes to sleep when users turn off the screen, preventing calls and messages from interrupting the owner. Owners can customize life mode just a little. Uh, the phone returns to full functionality when you wake the screen back up. Google Assistant is built in and works with custom voice-activated shortcuts to perform a variety of actions. It's not cheap, $350 uh, for the device, and it will go on sale in November. Um, it is an interesting concept, uh, though I'm not sure how well this is going to be executed in, in a way that people feel like they need a now fourth device, if you're thinking about it as in wearable phone, tablet, and now something, whatever this is, in between that wearable and that phone. Yeah, this is obviously supposed to probably take place of the wearable. If you can't wear watches or don't want to, this would be something like it. But boy, even at that point, this is, to me, that's too big still for that. But it's definitely a, a start because this is the size of the iPhone, uh, the old iPhones, right? I mean, uh, that's not tiny or really convenient, or I wouldn't even call it ultra mobile because we used to have cell phones that were little teeny things. There was a Nokia that was like two inches tall uh, with the you know numeric keypad on it. So uh, definitely neat. I hope they continue with small, tiny devices and release actually just kind of full standalone devices instead of a companion one, which is kind of strange that it's not just a, a full separate cell phone. Yeah, it seems like something like this would be better suited in like the two inch size, like the iPod Nano or something like that. You're right, where, right. Yeah, then, and that and that kind of makes sense where you can like, if it fits in the change pocket on your jeans, then we're talking about that's an ultra mobile device. This is just a, a slim down, stripped down smartphone that they've kind of figured out a way to have it as a companion. And uh, so you still need to have a, a regular line. And I don't know if I've got the room in my pocket, I'm just going to bring my regular phone. I don't need to deal with this for any sort of reason. Or if you decide that you don't want to bring your phone, then maybe you just grab a backup phone. But just something like this just kind of seems seems odd. It seems what little whatever. Uh, anyway, very interesting though. Palm is back with this device. Well, Google says it plans to introduce support for external microphones for its line of Pixel phones. This will allow those shooting video to capture higher quality audio to accompany the visuals. The features uh, will work with USB-C ports on the Pixel 2 and 3, as well as the 3.5 millimeter jack of the original Pixel. The company confirmed the update in its forum, stating that at the same time as the Pixel 3 launch, will introduce support for Android-compatible plugged-in external microphones in the default camera application for all Pixels. Other Android camera apps have supported this feature for some time, but not the main Pixel camera app. Pixel owners can expect to see the app update with the new tool in the next few days. Well, Huawei on Tuesday announcing its flagship series for the year. It's the Mate 20 and the Mate 20 Pro. The phone shares a number of features. They have their own identity thanks to the differences in the screens and chassis, though. The most distinctive feature is the camera module on the rear, which is, a, is square-shaped and contains three cameras and an LED flash. Both the Mate 20 and 20 Pro are powered by Huawei's Kirin 980 processor, which they say delivers more AI-based smarts than its latest generation chip. The Kirin 980 features dual neural processing units to improve image recognition, master AI for processing 1,500 different scenes, and predictive focus for tracking subjects in real time. Other shared features include Cat21 LTE with dual SIM cards, Bluetooth 5, Wi-Fi, GPS, and support for 256-gigabyte memory cards. Both include a 24-megapixel selfie camera at f2.4 and come in five colors, including green, blue, twilight, pink gold, 
and black. The devices run Android 9 Pie with Huawei's EMUI 9.0 skin on top of it. EMUI 9.0 is paired back a bit when compared to 8.0 and features business software as well as the ability to, to project a desktop mode to wireless displays. Now, specifically, the Mate 20 Pro is the higher-end version of the two. It's got a notched 6.39-inch curved OLED display with Quad HD Plus resolution for support for HDR. The Mate 20 Pro includes a fingerprint reader buried under the display as well as 3D facial recognition for security. The phone features three rear cameras contained in the square module on their back. The main camera has a 40 megapixel sensor at f1.8 and is joined by an ultra wide angle 20 megapixel sensor at f2.2 and an 8 megapixel 3x telephoto sensor at f2.0. The phone supports wireless charging and can even act as a charger for other devices. The battery is rated at 4200 milliamps and is comes with 6 gigs of RAM and 128 gigs of storage. The Mate 20 is a teardrop notched screen that measures 6.53 inches across the diagonal with full HD plus resolution. It features a three camera array on the back and the main sensor at 12 megapixels at f1.8. Wide angle sensor is a 16 megapixel f2.2 and an 8 megapixel two times telephoto sensor at f2.4. The phone supports wireless charging and the battery is 4000 milliamp hours. It comes with either four or six gigs of RAM and 128 gigs of storage and a rear mounted fingerprint reader for security. Both the Mate 20 and Mate 20 Pro are expected to ship in November, pricing not disclosed, and Huawei says the phones will be available for purchase in the U.S. through its website. Now, aside from the 20 and the 20 Pro, Huawei also announced two other new phones on Tuesday. The Mate 20X is a massive slab with a 7.2-inch screen and a 5,000 milliamp-hour battery. They're pitching the phone as a gaming device and relies on a graphene film and vapor chamber to keep the Kirin 980 CPU and GPU cool, which translates to faster speeds for longer periods of time. The phone includes the same 40-megapixel ultra-wide-angle camera that's found on the Mate 20 Pro, and it supports pen-based input and has an IP53 rating for protection against minor splashes. The Mate 20X will retail for 899 euros and goes on sale October 26th. Then there's the Mate 20 Porsche Design RS, which features a custom design chassis inspired by Porsche's racing legacy. A glass, it has a glass racing stripe on the rear panel that's surrounded by leather. The phone is a more round shape for the other than the other Mate 20 phones, but shares all the same specs as the Mate 20 Pro. That will start at 1649 euros and that will go on sale in November. These are some crazy devices and the power on them. I'm mean, just thinking of the specs. It's like most laptops still don't have that and of course now this has been like this uh, for a few years now, but uh, the power is amazing on these devices and it and it's kind of sad because it seems like all people do is just use the Facebook app on these things. Yeah, it's I, I laugh because it's so true. I anytime you see some it's actually more Instagram now, right? I mean, people are on Instagram right. doing things, but uh it's uh yeah, it's it's amazing what they're actually using we using the phone, all the power of this phone for. But, you know, think about it how uh, people go out and spend 2 $3,000 on, you know, a Mac or any kind of computer and uh, use it to browse the internet and use Gmail in uh, in Chrome, right? I mean, it's kind of the same thing. The the amount of uh, you know, power that we're using in these devices is definitely not uh, what uh, they can ultimately do. But either way, some nice phones, some nice specs, and uh, Huawei's got a good lineup here for the next year. Now, along with that new hardware, they showed off a new memory card format to accompany uh, the flagship devices. Uh, the 20 Pro supports two SIM cards, but not a traditional micro SD memory card. So in order to give people the option to add storage, they designed a memory card that's shaped and sized like a nano SIM card. They didn't say what storage allotments the card will come in, though they did show 
show a 256 card during the announcement. There's no word on pricing or availability, and they did not say how the memory card interfaces with the SIM connector. Cheesy. Come on. It's a, there's a micro SD. You don't need to do a, a card that same size. That what a what a waste. Yeah, I mean, now that you've got something that is, you know, uh, in iteration or a bifurcation, I guess is the right word of uh, the existing standard that everybody else uses. This is I I don't think is going to go anywhere unless you just happen to have the phone and you happen to need extra storage and maybe you get one. But after that, you're, you're you're done. You're not using it again. On the wearable side, they announced the Watch GT, a smartwatch that is traditional in appearance but focuses on fitness. They say it's designed for the urban explorer and can track a wide range of activities, include automatically tracking running, swimming, cycling, CrossFit, hiking, and walking. It has a round 1.39-inch AMOLED screen surrounded by a ceramic-coated bezel and stainless steel chassis. It's got excellent battery life. It relies on a dual-chip system to separate low- and high-power tasks, and they said it relies on AI to understand what the wearer is doing and will automatically switch to power-saving mode where it can. As a result, it supports up to two weeks of battery life with a heart rate monitor and tracking of 90 minutes of activity per week. With heart rate and GPS off, the wearable can offer the time, messages, and calls uh, coming into the user's phone for up to 30 days. With continuous exercising and the GPS and heart rate monitor active, the battery will last about 22 22 hours, still respectable for a wearable. Uh, The device features a six-sensor heart rate monitor to record the most accurate measurements, and it's not based on Android's Wear OS as Huawei's older watches are, instead favoring a Wear OS-like UI that Huawei has developed itself, though no pricing or availability details were revealed. And finally, in hardware this week, Asus has made its ROG gaming phone available to U.S. customers. Uh, This device is available online from Asus, Amazon, and Microsoft. The 128-gig version costs $899, and the 512-gig version, $1,099. The company says the phone will start to ship during the last week in October. The ROG phone has a Snapdragon 845 processor, 8 gigs of RAM, and an Adreno 630 GPU. Asus gave the phone a vented copper cooling panel in order to control thermals. It's got a 6-inch Full HD Plus AMOLED screen with a 90 hertz refresh rate, as well as a 10,000 to 1 contrast ratio, and a discrete imaging chip for HDR playback. Other features include 64-bit stereo speakers, DTS headphone, and 7.1 virtual surround with a 4,000 mAh battery and a 12-megapixel camera. In software news, Google has quietly updated its Google Assistant to make real-time translations available across a wide range of products. The real-time translations were initially limited to Google's uh, own Pixel Buds, but now any headphones that support Google Assistant can access the instantaneous translation function. The headphones that ship with the Google Pixel 3 and Pixel 3 XL are among the first to support the feature. It's so Star Trek. It's like the Universal Translate. It's still so amazing to me, even though this is not even new. Uh, it's still just cool as heck. Yeah, you can basically talk to uh, anybody speaking any language and understand what they're saying. By the way, it, I I'm, don't know if you've seen this or if this is an option um, in every device, but uh, there is there's a listening mode that is available through um, the accessibility settings in iOS that I just discovered this week. And the way that it works is um, if you've got uh, a set of headphones plugged in, and it might just be specific to the fact that I've got AirPods, but when you've got headphones plugged in, um, you can t- flip on this option and it amplifies uh, the, the room sound around you. And it's actually really cool. I, I don't know uh, when I would actually use these like in a real life scenario, but I just I love this idea that it uh, you can use the, the headphones, kind of the commercial headphones almost as like hearing aid light. Uh, but it was I, I just found that fascinating and just figured that found that feature buried this week. 
Yeah, I think they uh, they announced it at the keynote. I think that was an iOS 12 uh, feature that they added, I, I believe. But yeah, it is really kind of neat. And of course, on the hearing aid side of things, there, there's there been some recent uh, deregulation or acceptance of uh, not professional hearing aids to kind of go to a mid-level hearing aid where there's, uh, you know, a company like Bose or Sony can actually kind of now sell devices as, you know, hearing assistants um, instead of having to go to an audiologist to get a, an official hearing aid for the cost of $10,000, whereas these devices from consumer electronics, you know, are in the hundreds of dollars versus, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. So we've got some uh, neat progress there coming as far as uh, pricing and even feature sets of uh, hearing assistance. Yeah, it, it's a it's a just a crazy time to be living with all this technology and all of the things that have been, I'll just say, you know, relatively standards, uh, you know, are, are kind of now morphing with uh, the, you know, the consumeration uh, of all of this stuff. So it's, it's pretty neat. Uh, also from Google uh, Tuesday, they said people can now search for and locate electronic vehicle charging stations in Google Maps. So in addition to displaying its closest stations, Maps will provide information about the businesses where the charger is located and the types of ports that are available, including how many ports there are and the charging speeds. Google says it will uh, offer crowdsourced information as, such as photos, ratings, and reviews of the charging stations. And Google will supply links of two, two additional details about the charger as well. Globally, Google Maps will locate Tesla and ChargePoint chargers. And in the U.S., it will also locate SemiConnect, EVgo, and Blink chargers. So those five really make up probably 95% of all the chargers that are out there. So they've picked the appropriate brands and will be displaying them. Uh, Android and iOS users can download the new version of Maps with the EV charging locations right away. And Google says the same information will be made available on desktop PCs in the coming weeks. Spotify uh, this week showed off a new way for people to manage their music. The company developed an application specifically for Wear OS devices that lets consumers play, pause, and skip to the next track, as well as set instantaneously setting tempo matching songs for their runs, connecting to their home speakers, and managing and accessing their playlists. Spotify says its new Wear OS app will reach customers over the coming weeks. Separately, the company said Fossil has agreed to preload the Spotify app on several of its Wear OS smartwatches. So the Apple Watch defaults to this uh, kind of a music management mode. Uh, it gives you the player controls, volume and the track forward and pause by default if your iPhone is playing something. And that is a super handy feature. I really like when that appears because it makes it super easy to control. Yeah, the, the only thing I will say about it is that it does it pretty much with any music or you know audio that's happening. So you might be watching a YouTube video or something, and then you go to you know check the time on your watch as an example, and it shows the audio controls, and then you got to back out of it. So, uh, but it's you know it certainly is for the most part handy. Um, you know I actually prefer it um, in in some kind of interesting scenarios, like when you're going for a walk, um, you and you've got the Bluetooth headphones on as an example, and you use the watch to control the volume. You can just reach down and scroll up. Up and down on the crown uh, or you know you know skip a track um, it also can be handy in the car if uh, you happen to um, you know if you if it's easier for you to just touch your watch instead of you know touching the controls on the steering wheel although uh, probably is not the case because the car's controls are designed to actually be controlled in the car but uh, there are multiple scenarios where if you're doing things with bluetooth and streaming where the watch does come in handy the only thing that'd be kind of bad about this thing is you actually have to launch the app to get it to come up and, and interface with it. So by that time, it was probably quicker to get the phone out. Yeah, probably. Uh, Sony this week said it has laid out its phones that will receive the Android 9 Pie update. Uh, the update has already reached the Xperia XZ2 and the XZ2 Compact. 
and it will ship on the new XZ3. Sony says Android 9 Pie will be available to the XZ Premium, XZ1, and XZ1 Compact starting October 26th. The XZ2 Premium should get Pie November 7th. These will be followed by the XA2, XA2 Ultra, and XA2 Plus on or about March 7th. Uh, in other software news, Spotify is giving its paying subscribers a better application. They released the updated mobile application for Android and iOS with streamlined navigation meant to pe- help people find music faster. Uh, the app provides more recommendations based on the home screen and adds more results on to search and searches uh, surfaces favorites in users' libraries quicker. Spotify says it, its search page has been overhauled for better browsing, calling out of top genres, artist playlists, and podcasts. Finally, the app adopts the tool called Endless Artist Radio, allowing people to search for a musician or song and listen to an endless playlist of music by that artist. Spotify says these endless playlists are updated regularly and are available for offline listening as well. Spotify Premium requires a $10 per month subscription. And finally, Google has made it easier for people to share their estimated time of arrival with others. So moving forward, people can tap uh, the carrot button in maps and begin sharing their trip progress and can include their live location, route, and ETA. The update allows live ETA info to be pushed via Gmail, SMS, and third-party apps such as Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp. Once the journey is complete, the user automatically stops sharing their location. People can now share live driving, bicycling, and walking journeys. This tool is in the latest version of Google Maps for Android and iOS. I can't believe that feature didn't exist uh, previously. I know sharing your location, but having the actual ETA based on the actual directions is an amazing feature. I, I'm shocked it wasn't there prior. This seems like it's it's one of those functions that it's I don't know why, but it's taken you know just way too long for this stuff to be to to really kind of you know catch on. If if I if I think about how I, I have been using Google Maps now for. 15 years, something like that. I mean, think about the last time uh, that you you went somewhere and you didn't use Google Maps. Um, it, it's it's just it's like mind blowing to think about how how long uh, this has been out. Um, and the fact that we are just now getting the ability to do this, um, it seems it just it's it's crazy. Um, I, I I'm just I'm baffled by this. I would love to um, figure out different ways to to use you know this in a more more automated type of sense. So as an example. Um, you go somewhere um, and you're trying to navigate, you know, whether it's to, to meet up with a friend or a spouse or a family member, whatever it is. Um, and, w- you know, why this information, like it, it, think about like how, how you usually do it. You, you pull up Google Maps, you, you enter your destination, you start commuting. And then, because we probably all do it, you, you reach over to the phone, go to messages and say, ETA is showing dot, dot, dot. And you send the person a message. Why is this, you know, why is it not something that just shows up as a, would you like to notify such and such, you know, or, or whatever it is, would you like to notify somebody uh, of this ETA? Waze has been doing it um, in a certain, you know, in in a more, um, I'll just say user friendly way uh, than Google has been. Um, But it just seems like we've got, we've got some work to do with this. And um, you know, cause I, I personally love, uh, you know, using maps anywhere that I go for the traffic benefits alone, uh, don't like ways, uh, haven't used ways, um, in a while, um, which I know a lot of people will disagree with and say, you're crazy. It's much better. And, and that's fine. I just choose not to use it. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's, let's bring some of the other great features over to Google maps because I, I do believe, um, you know, that there's, there is room for both of these in the market. 
Well, no questions or comments today, but uh, if you have anything for us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us email to questions at thecellphonejunkie.com or give us a call 650-999-0524 and we'll get whatever you have to say on a future show. Joey, thank you very much as always for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com.